0: Hey, good morning, everybody. I'm Brian McCoy, and I'm one of the pastors here. Our uh, lead pastor, Nate Milliken, has been in Southeast Asia for about 10 days or so, and he, along with several other pastors from the U.S., have been working with our International Mission Board, and they have been providing some training, gospel Center training for local pastors there who don't have a lot of access to that kind of thing, and so we're grateful that he was able to do that, send him there, and this is a travel day, I believe, for him, so I think that's right. And uh, so pray for him. See travels. It's a long journey back, all right? Hey, uh, we're in the book of Genesis together as a church family, so I'm going to invite you to open your Bible to Genesis chapters 15 and 16. And uh, if you use the Bible there in the pew, it's on page 10. That's where you're going to find it, Genesis chapters 15 and 16. Now, the app isn't going to do you any good this morning, sorry, and there's not going to be anything on the screens except that beautiful slide right there, my bad, as well. But uh, I'm going to try to help you as we kind of walk through the, through the text this morning, all right? I want to begin, though, with a, with a story, not in the text, but my, my own story out of my own life. Uh, it was years ago, and I found myself in an ICU waiting area. My dad had had major surgery for cancer. And it had been several days after that surgery, but he was still in the hospital recovering. Things were going well, but uh, a little issue popped up. There was a problem, and the doc came in and said, "We just need to do this ordinary procedure, and we'll we'll get it done." There wasn't any kind of uh, they were just kind of put him in that twilight thing, you know, and uh, and and take care of it. And of course, as can happen even with ordinary procedures, all things did not go well. They lost him on the table. Thankfully, they resuscitated him, and. Uh, It was tough, though, after that, because my dad spent the next three weeks in the ICU just hanging out between life and death. It was very difficult. And I remember myself and my mom, my sister, and then many other friends of my dad. My dad had a big circle of friends who were there in that ICU waiting area, and then, you know, a couple people at a time would go back into that little room, and he was on a vent, and he wasn't responsive. And we were walking through that for about three weeks, and it was difficult. We were living in the gap between the promise of God and its fulfillment. We were dealing with the struggle and the tension of all of that. And in these two chapters that we're looking at this morning in Genesis 15 and 16, we're continuing in the life of Abram and his wife Sarai, and we see them living in the gap between the promise of God and its fulfillment, dealing with the struggle of what is and what was meant to be or what is meant to be according to god and and the question is this how are we supposed to live when we're in that place how are we supposed to behave what are we supposed to think when we're living in the gap between the promise of god and its fulfillment and so here's the big idea it's big so you can't write the whole thing down but i'll try to reduce it a little bit for you all right here's the big idea when you're in the gap between the promise of god and its fulfillment don't take shortcuts that create long-term problems Keep trusting your father and his promises. When you're in the gap between the promise of God and his fulfillment, don't take shortcuts that create long-term problems. Keep trusting your father and his promises. When we come into Genesis chapter 15, uh, Abram has been doing pretty well. It's been 10 years since God first came to him, since God first promised to him a son, some descendants, promised to bless him, promised to make him a blessing to all the nations. It's been 10 years since God came originally to do that, and it looks like things have gone pretty well. In the last two chapters that we looked at last week with Cody, chapters 13 and 14. Remember, Abram did what? He he gave Lot his nephew first dibs on the land. He said, "Lot, you can look wherever you'd like to look. Move wherever you'd like to. I'll take the take the rest." And and so Lot did that. And later in the chapter, God came to Abram again and he reiterated the promises that he's already made. He just came to him and said, "Abram, I'm going to make your descendants like the dust in the ground." And that would be really something for us in Phoenix, right? I mean, we can understand that. There's a lot of dust on the ground, you know, and we would we would get that. And then in chapter 14, a war breaks out and these kings go to war, and they're fighting, and suddenly nephew, the, the nephew of Abram, Lot, he gets caught up in it, and Abram has to go rescue him, and so Abram saddles up. He rides out with 300 guys, and he rescues his nephew, and at the end of chapter 14, here's Abram victorious because he hasn't just rescued his nephew. He defeated these kings, and instead of kind of pounding his chest pridefully. He doesn't take any of the plunder that would be rightfully his. Any other king would do that. He doesn't take it. In fact, he lifts his hand and he makes a declaration to God and everyone who will hear that God is his God, that God alone is going to provide for him. He's trusted in God. And then he gives 10% of everything that he has to the priest of God. And so he he walks in humility. He declares his trust in God. And he gives, he worships in in a generous, lavish kind of way. And then we get to chapter 15, and we think, man, things things are going well for Abram. But there's this verse in 1 Samuel. Now, it's from the story of King David, but the verse says, man looks on the outward appearance, but God looks on the heart. In other words, things are not as they appear to us as we read through the text. Something else is going on, and you see why right here in Genesis 15, verse 1. After these things, all of those good things... The word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, for I am your shield. Your reward will be very great. Something else is happening in Abram's life. Why would God show up in the midst of all this good stuff and the first thing he says is fear not? Abram has a chance to speak. Abram says, oh Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless. In other words, I might die without a child. And the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. It's as if Abram is saying, God, thank you for being my shield. I appreciate you telling me that my reward is going to be great, but where is the promise? Because it's been 10 years, and if I die right now, everything that I own is going to belong to this guy. He's not even a member of my family. He's a servant. He's a slave. I picked him up in Syria. What about the promise? And like the people to whom Genesis was written, the people who were wandering in the wilderness, Abram is looking for evidence that God is actually going to come through with the promise. He wants to know what's happening. He's living in the gap between God's promise And it's fulfillment, and many of us have found ourselves in those kinds of places. I described one of those from my own personal experience earlier. And maybe you've been there. Maybe you've read and said, you know, God, I know that you've promised never to leave me or forsake me. But I open the Bible and I read it, and I come to worship, and I participate, but I still feel like I'm all alone. I'm not sure you're really with me, God. Or maybe you say, God, I know that you've told me in your word that if I wait on you, I can rise up on wings of eagles, and I can run and not be weary. I can walk and not faint. But this issue has persisted in my life, and it hasn't just been a few days or a few weeks or months. It's been years, and I'm still struggling, and I'm tired. Where's the promise? Maybe you say, God, you have said that you were going to conform me to the image of your Son, that I'm going to be like Jesus But there is this sin, there are these sins in my life and I struggle with them and I've cried out to you and how I want to be delivered from these things. I want to be holy, I want my life to look like Christ. But I'm not sure you're listening. Or maybe you've said something like, God, you know, I know that you've promised that you would cause all things to work together for good to those that love you and are called according to your purpose and I'm your child. But when I look at my life and I see all of these things that are happening, I don't see how any of this I don't see how any of this could work to my good. How does God respond to that kind of heart? That's what Abram's expressing. That's what all of us in this room have expressed to God at some time or another. Look at what he says in verse 4. Behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son, one from your own body, as it were, shall be your heir. And he brought him outside. Remember the picture on on the video? He brought him outside. And he said, look toward heaven and number the stars if you're able to number them. And then he said, so shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess it. How does God respond to a heart that wants to know, where's the promise, God? Are you working, God? Are you active? Are you present? God responds to all of us just like he did with Abram. He comes and he reassures us with the promise that he's already given us. He's reassuring Abram with a promise that he's already made to him, not just once, twice, now three times. Abram, you're going to have a son. And he gets a little bit more specific than he has ever before. A son from your own body, as it were. That's going to be your heir, not this man. And you're going to have a land. They're going to have that. And so you know what, it's okay to cry out to God when we don't understand, and it's okay to cry out to God when we're struggling with all of the tension, but you can expect that God is gonna reassure you. He's going to come back to the promise that he made to encourage your heart. Remember, this is God who initiates this conversation with Abram. So it's a grace that he's doing that. How might it happen for you and me today? What might be going on in your life? How might God do this for us? Well, he might just do it as you sit down to read the Bible. And if you remain faithful, right, keep trusting the Father and His promises. If you just said, you know what, I'm not going to give up spending time with God, even though there are moments when I come and I read the Bible and nothing seems to happen. But there might be that moment when you're reading and just being faithful, and the sense of His presence shows up, and you read, and He speaks to your heart. So you stay at it, and He, He shows up and He does that. Or it might be when you're with a friend from your foothills group and you're just drinking coffee. And you're talking about your life and your friend shares with you from the word and out of what God is doing in their life and God speaks to you through your friend. It might be in a context like this when you show up on a Sunday morning and you hear a message preached from God's word and God speaks to you. Certainly you ought to come expecting that kind of thing. It could be in any of those ways or other ways, but when it happens, it's a grace. And God is longing to encourage us to keep on trusting him even when it doesn't look like things are happening. Over time, we live in that gap, it gets tough, right? Because if it lasts very long, it's not easy. And if we're not careful, sometimes our hearts get hard to God's promises, right? We say, you know what, I've heard that before, I've heard it. I just don't need to hear it right now. I just don't want to hear it right now. And maybe we sometimes think, maybe on the outside looking in, that, you know, it's probably trite to quote Scripture. It's probably trite to write a card and put a verse in there and just, Remind my sister or my brother that I'm praying for them this prayer. But we have to be careful because if this is what God does here for Abram, shouldn't this be a model for us? That God comes to Abram and he reassures him with the promise. And maybe we ought to do that for one another. Maybe we ought not to Lean away from it, but to lean into it. He reminds us of his promises. He wants us to keep believing his promises to know that he's trustworthy and that he's true. And how does Abram respond to the promise of God? In verse 6, he believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. He believed it. He heard God's word and he believed it. The sense of the language is that Abram said, Amen. Abram, you're going to have a son, you're going to have descendants, they're going to live in the land. Amen. Going to happen. I believe it. In the New Testament, they talk about this being righteousness, that this is how we obtain righteousness with God. It's by faith alone. Listen, God doesn't give you righteousness. He doesn't make me righteous or you righteous because we earn it somehow. It's not because you've done better this year than you did last year. It's not as if you're a better person than your neighbor or your coworker. It's not because you show up and do a ministry or you give generously or you're consistently in worship or consistently in your foothills group. Those are all good things, but none of those things merit righteousness from God for you or for me. We're sinners. It's what we do, and we're separated from God because of our sin. If we are righteous, it's because God graciously gives it to us just as he does for Abram right here. He justifies Abram. Abram has faith in God, and God says, I declare you to be righteous. He credits it to his account, not because of anything that he's done, but because God is gracious. Now, we you think about Abram and his situation here, you wonder, well, does my faith in God have to be perfect, right? Do I have to be 100% on all the time? And I think that as we look through this story, we can see that that's not the the case, right? It's not whether I fluctuate from time to time in my faith and suddenly that threatens my status. I think it's why we have verse 8, in fact, in the text as we walk through it. We see it because you think about this. God is reassuring Abram that he's going to keep his promises and that he has credited to him righteousness through his faith. And Moses writes that. Abram believed the Lord and he's been given righteousness. But then look at verse 8. Look at what Abram does. But Abram said, oh, Lord God, how am I to know that I will possess it? (laughs) God said it. You believed it. What happened in the space of two verses? How am I supposed to know that this is actually going to happen? Have you ever been there? You see the promise of God? There's a lack in time of fulfillment, and you think, when is this going to happen? How can I really know? It's been 10 years. That Abram has been waiting and still no child. And he's been crying out to God. And, and it's interesting to me because God is just continuing to reassure Abram through all of this. And this is, this is why I think verse 8 is in here. Because God is not, he's not asking this question, how, how well do you believe me? How well do you believe me? How strong is your faith? That's not the question. In whom is your faith? In what do you believe? In what are you basing your life? On what foundation will you build it? That's really the question, and that's what God is getting at here with Abram. And Abram is saying, God, can I just have a sign? Can I have some confirmation? And maybe you've said that. In the midst of a struggle, in the midst of the tension, and not knowing, God, can you just show me that you're here, that you're going to carry out your promises? Can I have some confirmation? And sometimes we might be afraid that God would be a little frustrated with that question. Say, okay, and I'm supposed to walk in faith before God. I'm supposed to believe, and I probably shouldn't be asking, how can I know? And maybe God will be disappointed in me because I'm not trusting enough or I'm not faithful enough. But you need to understand that he is not that sort of father. That's not how God the Father operates at all. He initiates this conversation with Abram. We look at the story and we think at first everything is working, working well for Abram. But God shows up and says, fear not. Wait a minute, where'd that come from? We get into the conversation, we discover, oh, there is something going on in Abram's heart. He is afraid. He is doubting. There is struggle. There is attention. He's waiting for the promise. And so isn't that true for all of us? We have all been there. Maybe you are there. And so we cry out to God just this way, but we don't have to be afraid that our Father's going to somehow turn his back on us just because we ask, God, how can I know? I love what Psalm 103 says about our Father in heaven. It says, As the Father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. He knows our frame, He remembers that we are dust. Listen, when your kids are hurting, and they don't have the answer, and they are struggling. I mean, you you, you don't just walk up to them and say, I know you got a problem. Google it. Right? I mean, we don't do that, right? Maybe you do that if they're 16 or something like that. I don't know. Or maybe it's even younger now. But uh, no, we don't do that, right? Because we know they're children. They're kids. You don't just say, well, didn't I show that to you, you know, yesterday? Three times? Figure it out. We don't do that because they're children. Sometimes you have to tell them over and over again. And God tells Abram over and over and over again, Abram, I'm with you. I got you. This is my promise. I'm going to do it. Rest in me. Trust in me. And that's what he does over again. Now, I want you to look at verses 9 through 16 because this scene has not been too out of the ordinary But we're getting ready to really get into some interesting stuff here, okay? Look at verse 9. This is what God says to Abram. Abram, bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. Abram brought him all these, cut them in half, laid each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. And when the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. Get the picture. It might be in the middle of the day. It could be morning. I don't know what it is. But Abram... God doesn't tell Abram to do all, those, all that minutia, but Abram just does it. We're going to see why in a minute, but Abram goes and he does this, and imagine this old guy out there. He's killed these animals. He's cut them in half. He's lined them up like an aisle way, some on this side, some on that side. And now he's out there with his rod, with his staff, and he's shooing away the birds of prey because it's just a mess, right? I know it's family Sunday. So I'm trying to be careful. It's a mess. And he's trying to mind this mess. And in verse 12, look at what it says. As the sun was going down, it's not nighttime yet, maybe dusk. Sun's going down. A deep sleep fell on Abram, and behold, a dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. I think this is a spiritual thing that's happening to to Abram. I think he's about to encounter a vision from God. God is about to speak to him this way. In verse 13, the Lord said to Abram, know for certain that your offspring And so here's Abram saying, "God, how can I know?" And God says, "Abram, I'm going to I'm going to tell you something. I want you to know, be certain of this that your descendants are going to inherit this land. It will take some time. It'll take 400 years, Abram, but they're going to inherit the land. You won't live to see it, Abram. You won't live to see it. But trust me. I'm going to bring them in to this land. They're going to be servants for a while. They're going to be slaves, but I'm going to deliver them. They're going to be materially wealthy and rich. When I deliver them from that place, I'm going to judge the people that treat them harshly, and they are going to be in that land. Now, that's hard knowledge for Abram. He's not going to get to see this deliverance, and it's a long way off. At this point, remember, we're 10 years into the story. God just said 400 years from now. So sometimes the gap is considerable. What in the world does verse 16 mean? Right? I mean, it's kind of hanging out there. They shall come back here in the fourth generation Is referring to that long period of time, those 400 years, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. This is one of those verses in the Bible that really trips people up. And they look at it and they said, aha, the God of the Old Testament, arbitrary, capricious, judging people. He's gonna run a bunch of people out of their land who've lived there so that he can put his people in there. It's just like this sick kind of divine favoritism. But I want to argue to you that it's not that at all. In fact, it's actually divine forbearance. The Amorites live in this land, and they have known who God is. He's revealed himself to them. Abram has displayed who God is to them. And yet they will not repent, and they won't turn and trust in God. And so for 400 years, the clock is set for the Amorites, and God longs for them to repent and turn and come back to God. So he's being forbearing towards them, even in their sin. But he has set time, and when that time expires, judgment will come, and God will use his own people to execute judgment on the Amorites. But he longs for them to know him. He's showing forbearance in this passage. And isn't it interesting that while he shows forbearance to people who are so far from him, who don't care to hear from him, who don't care to worship him, his own people suffer in captivity. This is God's heart for the people who do not yet know him. It's pretty amazing to me. Now, look at what God does in verses 17 and 18. We've got a strange kind of scene about to get stranger. When the sun has gone down, now it's night, it was dark. Behold, a smoking firepod and a flaming torch passed between the pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying to your offspring, I will give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. That list of names was easier to read than the ones that Cody had last week, so I read these, <laughs> hoping that you would be impressed, but uh, yeah. Now, this is an odd this is an odd scene, to say the least, right? In response to Abram crying out, God, how can I know this? God makes a covenant with Abram. That's what's happening here. He's making a covenant. What is a covenant? A covenant confirms the promises of God to his people. God makes a covenant when he wants you to set down a marker So that his people can look at that and say, God is trustworthy. I can believe it. He's made a covenant. He will come through with his promise. That's what a covenant is. Now, there isn't anything 21st century about this scene, right? I mean, we got animals that have died. They're cut in two. There's a bloody pathway. It's really odd. I mean, when we want to make an agreement, what do we normally do? We go to someone's office and we sign our name. It's not as messy. And when we sign our name, what are we saying? we are saying we agree and we acknowledge that there will be consequences if we don't show up and carry out the promise we make when we sign it happens every time there's a wedding we do a wedding and at the end of the wedding somebody like me gathers up the bride and the groom good luck but it's, it takes time when we do it we get a couple of witnesses there and we sign a license I mean, how is that bride and groom gonna know that they're actually gonna carry it out? They sign a piece of paper. That's, that piece of paper says there's gonna be consequences if you jack this up. And so instead of signing, we have, this, we have this covenant-making ceremony that is all over the place in that time. Jeremiah chapter 34 gives you an example of it. You could go there and read it later today if you wanna do that. But basically, this is what happens. Two parties decide they're gonna to come to an agreement together. So they kill an animal or several. They line the pieces up opposite one another. They create a pathway. And of course, it's a mess. But together, they walk that path. And by walking down that path, they are acknowledging that there will be consequences to them if they don't fulfill their part of the covenant. It's as if they say, you know what? As I walk down through here, if I don't keep my promise, if I don't honor this covenant, may what's happened to these animals happen to me. May the birds of prey come down from heaven and tear me apart if I don't keep my part of the covenant. And that's what it is. And so it's really a unique kind of scene, but it's unique not just because this is the 21st century and we're looking back so far, but it's unique for a more significant reason. That smoking fire pot and that fiery torch in the deep darkness going between those pieces It's similar to the pillar of cloud uh, by day and the pillar of fire by night that leads God's people in the exodus from Egypt to the promised land. It's similar to the presence of God on Mount Sinai when the law is given. This is a vision of the very presence of God. Now ordinarily, when a covenant is made, the two parties walk that bloody pathway together. But this is God himself. Alone, walking that bloody path for Abram making a promise and making a covenant and saying to Abram Abram you will have descendants and they will live in this land and if I don't fulfill and honor my part of the, pro- the promise and this covenant then may what's happened to these animals happen to me I'm making a covenant with you Abram unto death I'm holding this over my own head. Abram, may the birds of prey come and tear me apart. May I die if I don't carry out this covenant. Abram, you will have descendants. They will live in this land. I would give my life to see that that is true and is carried out. So, what about us? What about now, right? Sina smoking fire pot or a fiery torch lately in your dreams, right? The big idea, remember the big idea when you're between the promise of God and its fulfillment, don't take a shortcut that creates long-term problems, but keep trusting the Father and His promises. If we do not keep trusting the Father to honor His covenant commitment to His people, to you and to me, If we don't trust Him, then we have a tendency to take matters into our own hands. We have a tendency to create shortcuts. We have a tendency to manipulate a situation so that it works out for us. We have a tendency to try to manufacture a solution to make things work and come together rather than trusting God and keeping His promise. We try to do these things and accomplish God's will our own way. But there's a problem with that. The text in chapter 16 tells us that Sarai is barren. She cannot have children. But it also lets us know that Abram is able to have children. And so we have a problem. We get a shortcut that creates long-term problems. Look at the passage, chapter 16, verse 1. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar, And Sarai said to Abram, Behold now, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. After Abram had lived in ten years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar, listen to this, took Hagar the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram as a wife. Gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. And he went into Hagar, and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, I don't know how much time had passed so that she could see that she had conceived, but when she saw that, she looked with contempt on her mistress. And Sarai said to Abram, may the wrong done to me be on you. I gave my servant to your embrace. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. But Abram said to Sarai, behold, your servant is in your power. Do to her as you please. Then Sarai dealt harshly with her, and she fled from her. Sarai leans into a common practice in order to manufacture a solution to this 10-year-old problem to solve the tension between the promise of God and the fulfillment of that promise. But she seems to have forgotten that God made a covenant called marriage that was supposed to be between one man and one woman, She seems to have forgotten all of the instances that God has shown himself to be faithful and true and trustworthy to them over and over again as he has protected them and provided for them on this journey. She seems to have forgotten all of that. And here's Abram standing passively by, allowing her to just manipulate this whole situation in an effort to manufacture a solution. You know, if you read Genesis chapter three and you put this passage right next to it, it sounds eerily familiar. Think about it. Eve in the garden and the Satan, this tempter, comes to her and says, did God really say? Did God really say? Is God really looking out for you? And she sees the fruit of that tree and she says it looks good, looks healthy, And she takes it, and she eats it, and she gives some to her husband. And he takes it, and he eats it. And here's Sarai. And wondering, is God going to fulfill his promise? Does God really have our best interest at heart? It's been 10 long years. I can't have a child. Perhaps, maybe, God would bring a child through her. Everybody else does it this way. Why shouldn't I do it this way? Abram, I have this servant. Her name is Hagar. She's of childbearing age. I give her to you as a wife. Go into her. Perhaps we'll have a child. And Abram, knowing better, passively goes along with the scheme. And now this girl is pregnant, and there's trouble. Sarai is angry at Hagar. Why? You see what Hagar is doing? She holds her mistress in contempt. Who's the wife now, girl? Can you imagine that conversation at the household? It's not going to be easy living in that same space with those two women, right, guys? Don't want to be there. So Sarai is angry at Hagar, and Sarai is hurt towards her husband. And what about Abram? And, and Hagar is prideful towards Sarah. And what about Abram? I mean, this is the guy, right, who behaved like a king, I mean, he saddled up his horses, and he rode out to rescue his nephew. He grabbed 300 of his best men. He fights four kings, and he wins. And then, instead of in pride taking all the plunder for himself, he worships God, declares God to be the protector and provider of his life. He worships. He gives a generous offering, and now he can't find his backbone because he looks at Sarah and says, well, she's your servant you can do with her what you want. Suddenly, she's gone from being his wife, which she had become, to being his servant. She was right back to where she started. She was just an object for them to manipulate and use however they wanted. And he didn't provide for her or for the son, his son, that she was carrying. This is what they call a royal mess at my house. It's a mess. There isn't anything right. There isn't anyone right in all of this. And look at, look at what happens in verse 7. The angel of the Lord found Hagar. Remember, she fled away. The angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur. So she's in the wilderness of Shur. If you go to the maps part of your Bible and all the way in the back, you'll find Shur, it's almost to Egypt. She's trying to get home. She's running away from where She has been a possession, and she's trying to get home. And this is covered with God's grace, this whole section right here. In the midst of all this mess, grace comes. The angel of the Lord visits her, and he says to her, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from? Where are you going? She said, I'm fleeing from my mistress, Sarai. The angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit to her. God does not always ask us to do simple things. The angel of the Lord also said to her, listen to this, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. Why did he do that for her? Well, remember how God promised Abram that his descendants would be like a multitude, like no one could number? This is gonna be a descendant of Abraham. Abraham. The promise applies. Doesn't matter that Hagar was an Egyptian. He's continuing to show grace even in the midst of a mess. And then in verse 11, the angel of the Lord said to her, Behold, you are pregnant, you will bear a son, you will call his name Ishmael, meaning God hears. Because the Lord has listened to your affliction. He shall be a wild donkey of a man, his hand against everyone, everyone's hand against him, and he will dwell over against all his kinsmen, And today, much if not all of the conflict that we see raging in the Middle East is because we have one line of descendants living over against another line of descendants. And there's been conflict ever since. And it all started right here in Genesis chapter 16. And it all started because there were two people unenviably living in a gap between the promise of God and its fulfillment, struggling having problems and trouble and doubts and asking God for a sign. And instead of of continuing to trust the Father and his promises, they try to take a shortcut to the miraculous and manufacture a solution for themselves, a solution that everybody else would have snapped up and never thought another thing about. It just looked like the right thing to do, and they did it. And now there's a problem a long-term problem that even many generations since we still work with. Think about this. Why was there a delay? Why was there this continuing delay for Abram and Sarai to have a son? Sarai was barren. Abram was obviously able to conceive a child. So why wasn't God just moving? You know, if you go to Romans chapter four, you find the Apostle Paul talking about this passage a lot. And in that passage, he said, God was waiting for Abram to be as good as dead before he fulfilled that promise because God wanted this offspring to be a miracle. He wanted to take an old woman who was barren and an old man who could no longer conceive and bring them together and bring a child out of that union that would be a miracle to the glory of God, that God would raise up from this couple a nation of people through whom he would bless all the families of the earth. But when you take a shortcut, God's grace, thankfully, shows up in the midst of it. But man, there are problems all around. And when we take a shortcut, when we're in that spot, we can really jack up our lives. We can break relationships and bring chaos into our families. Not only do we sin against God when we do that, But we sin against others when we do that. And we create all kinds of brokenness as a result. Well, I'm going to ask the guys who are going to serve the Lord's Supper to go ahead and move into their spot, but just to wait for a few moments. In the the Gospels, I want to kind of cross a bridge a bit from Genesis 15 and 16 to the New Testament. In the Gospels, Jesus is in the upper room with his disciples and the Bible tells us in this Last Supper that he took bread. And when he'd given thanks, he broke it, and he served to them, and he said, this is my body which is given for you. Take it and eat it in remembrance of me. And, and after supper, he took the cup, and, and he said, this cup poured out is the new covenant in my blood. Take it and drink it in remembrance of me. And if you're asking, well, you know, how can I believe God? How can I know that God is going to keep his promises? I'm stuck here, and there's a lot of tension and struggle in my life because I'm hurting Well, you can know that because he took the place of a servant. He took the position of a servant and he walked that bloody pathway alone. And he didn't just do that for Abram. He's done that for you and me. Not through the blood of bulls and goats, but with the blood of his own son, God Almighty sealed a covenant that he's made with you and me so that we would know for certain that he would perform every one of his promises. God made a covenant with Abram. He said, Abram, your people are gonna be many, And they're going to live in the land. They were and they did. But Jesus has come. The Father has sent the Son to complete, to finish all that he intended to do. And Jesus has come with a better covenant. And every person who has faith in Christ, according to Galatians chapter 3, is now a son or a daughter of that man of faith, Abram. And according to Matthew chapter 5, we are not going to just inherit a little piece of land. We are going to inherit the earth. The earth is the Lord's and it is his footstool. He is going to reclaim it all. He's going to remake it all. He's going to redeem it all. Salvation is going to touch us all because of God's grace. The cross is where he made this promise. And he made good on it. The cross is that sign that God has made a covenant with you if you are trusting in him, and he will not break it. I love what Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians chapter 1. He said, For all the promises of God find their yes in him, in Jesus. Capital Y E S. Yes. Listen, in this life we struggle, we are living in the gap between the promise of God and its ultimate fulfillment. And so we struggle at times, and it's difficult. But because of Jesus, we can have hope. And this message and this text ought to go down into our hearts like an anchor of hope for us, that Jesus has done all that was necessary and needful to do. We will become all that God intends for us to become because of Christ. I like Philippians chapter 1, verse 6. It says this, and I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion perhaps through a lot of suffering and over many days or months or years, but he will bring it to completion ultimately at the day of Jesus Christ. So that when you look at the cross, not only do you find a place of forgiveness and cleansing and freedom from sin, but you see in that cross the place where God confirmed his covenant to all of those who would trust in him, that salvation and cleansing and life eternal is found alone in Jesus and He will bring you all the way home. He will make of you all that He intended to do. So I'm going to ask the guys to come and serve the Lord's Supper, that bread and the cup. Listen, if you're a follower of Christ, the bread is a symbol of His body, the cup is a symbol of His blood, and so this is something for believers. If you're a follower of Jesus, you should take it. If you're not yet a follower of Christ, it's an expression of faith. Don't don't take it. Allow it to just pass. If you're with children, allow it to pass from them if they've not yet put their faith and trust in Christ because it's an expression of faith that we do this and we remember all that he's done for us. Let me pray as they continue to serve and then we'll take it together. Father in heaven, thank you for your goodness. Thank you for making a covenant with us and thank you Lord Jesus for being obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. We thank you that we can have new life in you and that you guaranteed all of the promises of our Father with your blood. We are grateful for life in you. Thank you as we consider it even this now, even in these moments together. In Jesus' name.